so the shear is Liloy Nishmat Esther Bat Eliyahu and Esther Bat Yitzchak. The two yurt sites are, I think, on two sides of the. Ve'ela Mishpatim Asher Tasim Lefnehim. So there, there's a lot of discussion regarding the vav there, the vav achibor ve'ela mishpatim. So it is true that we kind of get the sense that this is a beginning or the beginning because it's uh, because it's the beginning of the parsha. It's the beginning of a parak. So we have like a good team up over here between those forces that decided that this is the beginning of parsha mishpatim and those forces that decided that this is chapter twenty one. So over here we have. Uh, two forces bring us to think that this is the beginning and that may or may not be the case now what you'll see and you would see this clearer if you looked at the file and the source that I actually sent because there I put in red and this was printed in black and white yes you saw the red so what I did was something very simple and that was to kind of uh, to go back to what was before and before was the Aserita deep road and I lined up the various things in the Parsha as per the Aserat Hadibrot. Now, there were a couple of different ways of doing this, so I don't know if I did... Again, one way of doing it would have been to go throughout the Parsha and then say, okay, to which, you know, draw, draw it to where it should be, from 1 to 10. Or I could have gone from 1 to 10 and then go to what it may be connected to in terms of uh, our Parsha. So as I said, you know, e- either way I would have gotten complaints. So I uh, just did that was convenient for me. So if you see source number two, it actually says in red, which you can't see, Mi Beit Avadim, which is part of the Anochi. And yes, I noticed that also part of the Anochi is missing over here, but I did want to hone in on that. The reason why this is easy is because it's the first Dibur in the beginning of Mishpatim, the, the discussion of Avadim, you were slaves, so I took you out of the house of slavery, and now Kitikna Evid Ivri, and if you looked in the various Mepharshim, I'm sure that some of them we remember, we're familiar with, that some of them are, you know, connected to uh, the, the ear, the ear who heard it, and so on, and, you know, doesn't really want to be free, and God said us forth is free, but over here, the the really main focus is that if you're going to have a slave or servant, whichever term you want to use, so what exactly are the rules of engagement and what are the rules of leaving? And it's also interesting that you have and, and what it is that the person is going to be leaving with. And again, there is this, say right now, because I don't want to oversell this, I'll say at least a loose association or something which reminds you of, but but maybe we'll say that in, in clearer terms. The Ten Commandments could be seen as being exceedingly exact. These ten things, and what we're going to see in Mishpatim is that we're, we're going to see how you apply it and how you spread it, and there will be situations of inexactitude, That'll be one element. The other element will be when things kind of flow over from one law to perhaps another law because also real life is not as pristine. Real life can end up being very messy. And therefore, it's the messiness of real life which is going to be, I think, referred to as we see the expansion of these laws. And But there is something very specific I want to get to, and that's going to be the thing which we're going to least, perhaps, least expect. If we continue again in source number two, we had Shmot Kaf Aleph, then I have Shmot Kaf, 
Pasakaf. Lota Asun Iti, Elohei Kesbelezav, Lota Sulachem. So this is an expansion of, look, if you see source number three, sorry, if you look at source number three, not to have other gods. So what I wanted you to note is that not following Parshat Mishpatim, not following the chapter 21, but rather going back to immediately after the Ten Commandments, we have this verse, Lo tasuniti, Elohei on the other hand, in this week's parsha, in the next source, Perakov Bad Posakutet, Zovehim Yicharam Biltila Shem Levado, again only to serve God, and again right under that, Elohim Lotikalev and Asibam Khalotar. Now that's the one you can argue with me, hold it, Elohim there doesn't mean God. But when I said expansion before, the things get expanded in ways which maybe you would not have predicted predicted. But in source number three, what you end up having over here is two different verses which relate to the second word, to this other commandment, lo yelacha, again, how you count the Ten Commandments is also quite interesting. But one of them was back in Perakuf, and the other one is Perakuf Bed, and that's what I want you to pay, pay attention to. In source number four, lo tisat shem Hashem lo you should not use God's name in vain. And in this week's parish, we have Elohim lo tikalev, So now, those of you who are clever will tell me, hold it, Elohim in this context doesn't mean God, it means a judge. Now the question is, is that an independent concept not to curse a judge? Or should we be asking ourselves a different question? Isn't it odd that when we speak about a judge, that a judge, we use the word Elohim, which is sometimes kadosh, which means, and and I think you can find Gemarot that either say this black and white or certainly will give you the impression of this, that when a judge creates justice, they become partners with God which means that there that that it's God's will that there should be justice on earth so therefore there's this partnership which takes place which therefore the calling the judge Elohim which is really daring and really interesting would apply now all that I'm doing is going a half a step further and saying hold it but then you should not curse Elohim does that somehow, therefore, connect to this idea of using God's name in vain and so on? And yes, there's a stretch, but that's what I was saying, is that the real world is messier and the real world is actually quite interesting. But, but believe me, my whole share today does not hinge on that, uh, on, on, on that comment. It's rather something which will come from the mode of thinking. And if you look at source number five, it is the commandment of Shabbat which for us is number four, right? The commandment of Shabbat. And you'll notice which I, what I did over here is that under that commandment, I put a bunch of other things. So what do we get into right now? We get into laws of Shemitah. Shemitah is called Shabbat Haaretz. So therefore, what I'm really suggesting is something which if you were keeping track of Rashi, Rashi tells us that the Ten Commandments are actually highlights and, and chapter headings, and then in the chapters themselves will be lots and lots of details. And he quotes Rav Sadyagon, who puts all 613 commandments into the Ten Commandments. So then, um, again, if that's the case, so when I have something like Shemitah, Shabbat Haaretz, and it's mentioned in this week's parsha of Eilah Mishpatim. And again, all that I'm suggesting is that Eilah Mishpatim is an expansion of the Ten Commandments. 
So then you should very quickly understand, oh, at least as a possibility, as I said, I'm not trying to oversell this, but at least as a possibility that Shabbat Ta'aretz, which is not called here, it's called Shemitah here, that this is really an extension of Shabbat. Now, again, why would I say that? Well, the easy part of it is the the format of the six and the one. For six years you work, and then the one year the land rests. But it's actually not just that. This is the secondary part of the thought process, which brings me here. The, the first part is actually what comes afterwards and then working backward. I'll say it in English now. <laughs> it's that right after that, the next Pasuk is, Pasuk Yudbet is, Sheshit Yamim Tasema Asecha Uviyom Tishbot. Okay? And then the further expansion is, which is also, you, you know that we could have stuck that in. He, I just, I'm lazy. That's why I left it over here. But if I was being overly rigid, I would have put that someplace else. But it's Pasuk Yedal that interests me. Shalosh Rigalim Techogli Bashana. It Chagamatzot Tishmur Shivat Yamim Tochamatzot Kashetziviti Chalamoid Chodesh Aviv Kivoyatzat Mutrain Velo Yerup and I Rekam Vachagaki. So, all of this is, is Shabbat. Again, where will you see this in a clear enunciation will be in Parshat Emor. In Emor, the various days are called called Shabbat or Tishbot or rest or cessation of Melacha, and Yom Kippur in Emor as well is called Shabbat. But I'm saying there, there's lots of uh, of things called Shabbat, and anything that is Isur Melacha is called uh, a Shabbat. There, what we're seeing then is one of the Ten Commandments is that there is this idea of a holy day. So what again? Expansion, extraction, application. Other holy days, are all the holy days identical? No. But there is nonetheless an Isur Melacha. And the Isur Melacha is what's interesting. By the way, you mentioned beforehand that the next holiday that we have is Purim. So the status of Purim as a holiday is really interesting. Because <clears throat> when Chazal made up, right, we have to say that, when Chazal made up Purim, they made it up in a really interesting way. They made a holiday which doesn't have any Sur Malacha. And according to the Gemara, there was a push to have any Sur Malacha. That there, that there was a discussion that, okay, this is a holiday, which means what exactly makes something into, an East, into a holiday which is Durabanan? And uh, we do have Durabanan, we do have rabbinic holidays with Isur Malacha, including Second Day Chag. For you, Second Day Rosh Hashanah. Okay, there is there, there there is such a thing where Chazal did use their strength to apply an Ismalacha on a rabbinic holiday, but Purim there was enough pushback not to do it, so it became something which is really interesting as a holiday. People who are sticklers would not call it a Chag. There's no Korban Chagiga, right? People who are not as rigid will not be troubled by this, and there there was a. Uh, one fellow, I'll, I'll call him one of the Niki Hadat Yushalayim, if you know that phrase, who I saw him right before Purim, and he said to me, Purim Smechim, right? Was pur- which, is, which is not precisely correct, but it's nonetheless, it should give somebody pause to think. But again, what happened over here is really an interesting expansion in two directions 
of Shabbat. In one direction, towards the sabbatical year, and in the other direction, towards the other days where there's an Isur Melacha, essentially, again, right now, as of this point, pointing towards the Shalosh Regalim. Um, correct, Rosh Hashanah is not mentioned yet, Yom Kippur is not mentioned yet. Maybe Yom Kippur really is only connected to the the Chet Egel. Well, Hanukkah was somewhat different because Hanukkah already had Purim to base itself on. So therefore, Purim is really the drama. You know, what do you do with Purim? And, and, and Purim has a big advantage over Hanukkah in the sense that they're still part of Scripture. There's a book of Esther, which is, which is part of Scripture, while in Hanukkah there's nothing. There's, 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 no, there's no more Nevoah, there's no more Scripture, there's no more Torah Shebechtav, as it were. No Nevim, no Ketuvim. It's all post that. So anything that Hanukkah has is going to hinge itself on Purim. So over here, again, what I was trying to show is that you look at Parshat Mishpatim carefully, or you look at through a particular prism, and that this prism is to look at the Aserat Tadibrot, for Eilah Mishpatim, so therefore here are the uh, expansions. But by the way, I will say that if you follow this Midrashic approach that God said all Ten Commandments, and then he started to explain, explain, the, the, explain the, the first two, Right? Explain the first two, even. I, I know that there's different ways of, uh, of saying what I'm saying right now. So it is interesting that we have certain elements of the first two which are still in last week's parsha, And then in this week's parsha we start moving further. But what I just now said is very inexact <coughs> and would need to be developed much more. And there are problems with it as well. But we'll, we'll leave it at that. In uh, source number six, that we're up to Kaveda Tavicha Vetimecha, so here we have two different verses, which and and, the, and here's where we actually you really get to the to the sloppiness. When I say sloppiness, I'm not talking about God, but I'm talking about the parsha. I'm talking about life. That we're commanded in this perfect, pristine world, right? And then we get to verses like ish motumat, but continue. One second, one second. I mean kaved motumat. It was also. I'm sorry, I just put the wrong verse there. There's also make. Uh, there's also hitting parents and cursing parents. So as I said, it gets it gets messy. But wh- wh- where does it get messy? It gets messy when uh, we move from the aspiration, which is, I say aspiration, what a terrible word. The aspiration, and then we move into the real life full of emotions and then people doing things which are inappropriate. And, that, and therefore I'm saying mishpatim is messy, but it's, but it's the messiness of, uh, of real life. So therefore, in uh, in the next source, Lo Tiritzach, that's where Makeh Ish Lameit Mot Yumat really should have been. But again, there's enough other ones over here. V'chiyiruven Anashim Vika Ishet Reyeu Be'Evin Uvergrof Le'Emut V'Chafal Meshkav Yakum, and getting all kinds of details. You beat somebody and they get up afterwards. What are you paying for that? V'chiyakeh Ishet Avdo. And again, so it's it's it, it goes from the worst case scenario of beating somebody then dying, and then there's lots of other gradations involved, which means the person who's going to be uh, beating people, you know, what if they get on their feet for a while and then they die sometime afterwards, which, and, and eventually leading up to the Ayin Tachat Ayin and Shein Tachat Shein and, and so on and so forth. But all of the, all of this, what I'm, what I'm again asking you to do is now think of it through the prism of the Ten Commandments and therefore there you have Lo Tirzach, and now we have various gradations of Lo Tirzach. I mean, again, you want to get to an extreme rabbinic idea of it that would even be embarrassing somebody would be an expa- an expansion of lo tirzach but nonetheless what mishpatim did is interesting 
because what it did is it looks, again, if we're not wrong in everything I'm saying today, it, it, it allows you to look at the Aseret HaDibrot and see them not just as specific points, but rather, again, as chapter headings, which then have a lot more information within them. Again, source number eight, Lotinaf, so commit adultery. So, apparently, there's lots of ways of committing adultery, but there's also different levels to it. So, over here, Kia Fateh, so here you're talking, uh, not necessarily about somebody who's married, but you're talking about a seduction. And or for that matter, there are other kinds of uh, of messiness which could uh, be included within gradations of having to do with sexual um, inappropriate behavior. The the continuation over here is interesting. Why that's thrown there in the middle? You can say any drasha you want. So that we've moved over from uh, from seduction of a single person, moving over to bestiality. So you know that was quite a jump that took place over there. But that's what I'm saying again: is that just this this really simple, dramatic, strong right? Do not commit adultery. I mean, the, the rumors are you've heard of the King James version of the Bible, the King James translation. Apparently, that he commissioned it because beforehand there was a Bible that was printed that had one mistake in it, one word was left out. Instead of it saying "do not commit adultery," it said "do commit adultery." There was a "not" left out, and they call it the Sinner's Bible. And uh, and King James, yeah. <laughs> Anybody who wants to buy that, you may have other problems, <laughs> and, uh, and and that and 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 and, uh, and and that's why he commissioned. You know, can somebody do this right? And that's that's why there was an official Bible then that uh, that they che- they checked for mistakes. Yeah. I'm not asking you to pass him, but how would somebody pass him? The father dies, and he has committed adultery. That's an easy case. There are harder cases. I mean, I, I can, again, we're not, you're right, we're not discussing now, and I'm not asking now, but uh, when I've taught this, and I have, you can look online, I've, ta- I've taught cases of uh, in dysfunctional relationships. There's a, there's a case that was asked to a rabbi of a girl who said, my father raped me. And uh, and I don't want to sit shift for him. I think he's a wicked person, and I want to celebrate his demise, as uh, as is written in the Shulchan Aruch. What you do when somebody wicked dies, so uh, that there is a really interesting tshuva which is written to that. I'm going to avoid now dealing with the case more than that. I think it's going to come down to what extent to you know, to what to what extent the individual suffered by the person who had uh, committed the various sins that they that they committed because you know none of us have uh, are, are sinless and none of us have never made mistakes so then now who is going to judge exactly where this is going to be so i think where there's going to be a direct impact or emotionally physically or so on that i think there's a much stronger reason not necessarily to uh, to sit shiva Hundred percent. Hundred percent. 
a hundred percent somebody should ask a shayla. And I, I was involved in a, in a situation where somebody asked me certain things about shiva, and they decided for reasons like this that they're not sitting shiva. They never asked a shayla, and I, uh, I I didn't think that they were necessarily just again not that I was necessarily privy to all of the details involved in the case, but I, it, it didn't strike me as they decided they would compromise only to shiva one day. I mean, I, it just didn't strike me as being uh, as as being very. Uh, very serious, but but yes, uh, somebody should ask a shayla. And I'm saying the greater the, the the person is a victim of that behavior, that would become a question. There's actually the question about honoring parents who are wicked. There's three different Gemaras that talk about it, and there's not necessarily full agreement between the three Gemaras at face value. And then you have the various Rishonim trying to reconcile the different uh, Gemaras. The, I mean, one of the cases that comes up, if the father was a thief and died with stolen property, does the child now who inherits the father's thing, is it, now that he's inherited it, let's just say now it's cash. So cash is somewhat fungible. And therefore, does he have some kind of a moral obligation to return it or does he not have a moral obligation to return it? So one of the resolutions of the Gemara, oh, we're talking about a case that he did tshuva. So the Gemara says, hold it, if he did tshuva, why did he return it? Meaning, what's going on? Okay, he didn't have a chance to return it, and he died. So now, is there a legal or a moral? Does it is, is the kivut of aim? So part of the complexity is is that at least according to some of the rishonim, if he did tshuva, then there would be an obligation to honor that parent who was a sinner. So now, how do you know who on their deathbed may or may not have done tshuva? I'm saying it's also something, although, that's what I'm saying, if this person was victimized, then maybe part of the tshuva is to ask for forgiveness. So that's what I'm saying. I don't want to touch this because it's just so, there was, it's so complex getting to the exact details involved in this. And the other thing which really troubled me about once when I was asked about one of these cases, it was a girl who's, uh, again, it, it, it was something like this. And she didn't want to invite the father to the wedding. And they came to me, her and her and her uh, fiancé, who since got divorced, came over and, uh, and asked me, uh, you, know, she, you know, we don't want to invite the father. And So what, what bothered me about answering the question? I didn't hear the other side. I didn't hear the other side. I only, I'm only hearing one side. So now is only hearing one side enough in giving such a decision, because what are they going to go and say, oh, the rabbi said I don't have to invite. But, but the rabbi heard one person, meaning if somebody comes over to me and says, I'm having an argument with my neighbor with this, and some, anything with money, I will always say I will not answer unless I hear the other side present their side of the information. I can't trust you to tell me theirs. And not that I'm saying that you're not being truthful. But uh, one, it's halacha, and two, I've lived long enough to know that there's always going to be another side. I, I, again, I remember situations that I dealt with where the two stories that I'm listening to have nothing to do with one another. It's like two different narratives that, that are just coincidentally related, that each one mentioned the other person's name in their story until one was able to somehow unravel all that and make sense of it. And that's the two of them sitting in the room together. Anyway, so getting getting back to that point, so this girl says, "I want to invite the wedding." By the way, this is a more fundamental question: Is somebody obligated to invite their parents to a wedding? So, I'm, I, again, I just want to stop because Kivut of Aim could now take us the rest of the discussion. But uh, these things are clearly quite uh, complicated.
In source number nine, Lo Tignov. So there's lots of stuff on this. I didn't give you, you know, nearly as much as there could be. Apparently, we've uh, perfected this over the years. Stealing, that is, right? We we kind of have this sense in the back of our minds that the that all of the Ten Commandments are punishable by death, and therefore stealing is not regular stealing. Stealing is kidnapping. So look at Parshat Mishpatim. That's kidnapping. That's ki- that, that, that actually is kidnapping, and the word gonav is being used. And now we're getting to stealing other kinds of things which are alive, like animals, then moving on to and so on, which means all of these cases, or moving on a couple lines later, still in Perak of Bet, Right, I could have bolded that. Mibeta ish im matzei haganav yishalem shnayim im lo im matzei haganav. Again, in the end, pasukav im ganov yiganav. So you see all the times that the word or the letters or the root ganav is being used. So you realize again that there is this expansion of the Ten Commandments, and again going in different kinds of directions, from kidnapping to stealing animals to stealing possessions as well. And all of this, I'm going to say it again, is an expansion of what we saw in the Sarita Dibrod. Source 10, Lota Nebirecha Echakir, again, false, bearing false witness. So in Perek Kof Gimel, Pasuk Aleph to Gimel, Lotisa Shema Shav El Tashit Yadcha Im Rasha, Liot Eid Hamas, in order, I, I'm sure you like the word Hamas here, which um, do not partner with somebody to be, to bear false witness. Also in Perek Kof Gimel, and so on and so forth. So all of these are expansions of ways of perverting justice. So I'll say it again, is that, I mean, everything I did right now really was easy. You, you do realize that, right? It did not, right? It did not take uh, a lot of uh, work. And you're probably saying, so what do you do all week? Because that was... Uh, in right, source 11... So then I, I went to which is interesting because, again, remember you were in Egypt, which that itself is good, not to hold on to the possessions of others. God will be upset with this. At the very end, again, don't take things which belong to others. So again, that would... And, and, and again, this I also could have applied to lots of different cases. Source 12. So now you know that this is really where we had started. So now I'm going backwards a bit because there was really one thing that I'm missing and that, that is Anochi. I, I just want to make sure that you understand that. We got everything other than Anochi. And some of you, again, will be clever and say, well, there is an argument whether Anochi is a mitzvah or not. It's just a fact. Maybe Anochi is something else. So we want to note that, okay, first of all, is the, the way that it's stated in the Ten Commandments. What is also over here, and again, this is just to, to finish this off, is something which is not easily in the Ten Commandments, but there is a long statement of this. This comes right after the Shosh Regalim. Then you have some Zionism. 
And in the in the expression of Zionist of Zionism, right, I'm going to send you, so on. There it says, and so on and so forth. Right? So over here, when I said, okay, we have, don't worship other gods, it is mentioned in the parasha, again, really quite clearly, but it is interesting because there's also the Zionist element to it, so we'll pause at that. Now, now, we can go backwards towards Anoche. Immediately after the Ten Commandments, right, we get to the last one, and we're in Source 13, and we're back last week, all the people see the sounds and so on, and they stand afar. Right? Don't let God speak to us anymore, because we could die. Right? So you may not hear this till I point this out. But Moshe is saying, you know, the purpose of this is if you have a completely God awareness. So what is another way of expressing a complete God awareness is really living with the idea of Anochi. I mean, that, that's exactly the point. <clears throat> which means the experience which they had at Sinai is experience of Anochi. That's, that's exactly the point. At the end of this week's parashan in Kaf Dalid, which we haven't looked at all yet, we have... Moshe, Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, and there's a cane going up on the mountain. And another Pasuk, which is quite difficult or challenging. Mm-hmm. Which means there again, there is this God, complete God awareness, which was there immediately afterwards and now also at the, towards the end of Mishpatim. And at the very end of the chapter, And everybody, again, experiences this God awareness. So all that I just now did, which you, again, maybe this I had to work a little bit harder and you would not have thought of this by yourselves, that I just now stuck all of these expressions within Anochi, within this fact of God existing, that they experienced it. Again, it's very, really different because all the others were statements. Don't do, do this, don't do this. But this was an experience. Anochi is an experience. And maybe that's another reason to look at it as being a little bit diff- different. Now, there's also something else that happens, which is now going to take us back and take us on a little bit of a, of, of, of a path, which is really where I want to get to. And which is really what the purpose of all of this is. Because again, there is Anochi, but there's another thing that happens and then another thing which may have generated it. In Source 14, and again, we're still in Perak Kavdalad. Again, only problem is I haven't done anything in sequence in Kavdalad. Okay. <laughs> No, that turn of phrase, Naseh in terms of Harsinai, Matan Torah, 
turns out to be pretty important. So this is the more formal aspect of it. First of all, so much of Matan Torah is God acting, and here is the people doing something. Here is the people accepting, here is the people being a part of it, but there's also another word here which is incredibly important, and that word is Brit, that there is a covenant. The covenant includes within it offerings, the olot, svachim, shlamim. It includes speaking, nasev It includes sprinkling of blood. And, and by the way, I mean, there are those, especially the Ramban, who will tell you, yes, this is a conversion process. The whole the Jews have Kabbalat mitzvot, and over here they are all becoming Jews. That's exactly what's taking place. So it's not just that God is saying, okay, stating these ten facts, you know, th- th- this is these are the rules the world goes by, but they're accepting these things, which is actually creates a process, but it also creates, therefore, this Brit, and it creates this covenant. The covenant has two sides to it, so it's not just God speaking, it's also the people responding and accepting. As I said, the Ramban reads all of this as being part of conversion, including the Korban. A Korban is needed by conversion. We were children We were children of Avraham and Yitzhak and Yaakov. I don't know what Jews... Let's just say... Let, let's, let's take your question and, and turn it around. Let's just say that uh, there was a couple who uh, got lost on the way to Sinai. He had his pictures he wants to take his, his camera and and uh and he makes it goes oh look at this sunset here and he's there taking pictures off on the side he's off there on the side he's busy and pick on you but he's, he's there taking his pictures and so on and uh they get to sign and it's after nasa so what does he have to do now is he jewish like everybody else or did he miss something he didn't have the sprinkling of the blood on. The Ramban insists that this is a conversion. And therefore, the heir of Rav become Jewish now as well. But the Jews have to have part of this covenant. So, as I said, it's not a simple thing. Oh, we blame everything. So it's great to have heir of Rav in your life that you can blame for all the <laughs> problems that exist. Okay. In source number 15, which we've gone all the way back now, to Paragimel. Now there's something interesting about Paragimel, and that is we're still in the same place. We're by Chorev. This is by the burning bush. And this is the first sign that God says to Moshe, I'm going to give you a sign, and this is the one that we always forget because it doesn't seem to make sense. And when you get out, you'll serve God on this mountain. Now, truth is, we could have just started here, the middle could have been here, and the end could have been here, and we could have only tried to discuss what that phrase means. I'm not going to do that. But I will show you Mepharshim, who've taken this phrase and used it in all kinds of interesting ways, most of them circling around exactly what we're up to, so let's let's start as we should in source sixteen with the Unculus, who's really quite literal. Tavdun is tifalchun, but tifalchun is to serve in the sense of avodah. I, I know, but it's, it's translating avodah, but it doesn't mean it, it means it means avodah, but the connotation over here 
is uh, is, is one of serving God, but that, it didn't help us all that much. <coughs> if it was a korban, that would be perfect. Targum Yonatan, which is the reason why I'm, I made a point about the Targum Onkelos, he says that when you get out, Tifalchun Kadum Hashem, Ditikablun Yat Oraiti. Or the Hebrew is, Tavdu Lufnei Hashem, Shitikablu, it's Torati Alaharazeh. So what does it mean you'll serve God on this mountain? What is serving God? Kabbalah Torah. What is Kabbalah Torah? Now I can argue that's the Nasev Again, you can argue with me that the Kabbalah took place in Perikutet. It's Perikav, Perikav. Kafal to Kaf Gimel is interesting. Kaf Dalud, you can say, but it means accepting the Torah. So, so this is really interesting because I again, what Targum Onkelos did is he translated it literally. You'll serve God on this mountain, and what Yonatan did is you're going to serve God in a transformative way by virtue of accepting the Torah, and now everything will be different. Yes, he didn't use all those words, but that's what he said. And one see again, one is very literal. Okay, you'll serve God. And, and I'll, I'll ask it this way. At which point can you just put a check on your list? Yeah, we did that. And at which, and what exactly does it mean to serve God? And, and that's where, that's what I was trying to get to. We're going to see it gets much more interesting. If you look at Ibn Ezra in source number 19, which is Parakeh. Right here is the negotiations with Paro. We're going to go and we're going to serve God. That when they get to Sinai, that's a three-day journey. That's where they're going to serve God in order to fulfill that which was said. So it's really interesting because he is throwing into the narrative of leaving Egypt this verse, in, in including when we're talking with Paro, where we need to go and what we need to do. And by the way, at this point, it's more technical. We need to bring a korban. That's, that, that, again, is much more technical and probably more in line with what we saw in Unculus. If you look at the Ibn Ezra in Source 20, now he's by Perik Yud Gimel. Perik Yud Gimel is talking about Pesach. so he is using the fulfillment of a mitzvah not in terms of a checklist, I did that, but in terms of a relationship. The relationship has changed. That you're going to serve me, which actually means it's not about that one action, it's about the relationship has changed, which means now you've become Ovdei Hashem. Now you've become servants of God as opposed to whatever you were before. And that's what it means. When you leave Egypt, you're going to now, again, you used to be, and, and we're familiar with this kind of thought, you used to be servants of power and have to do what he said, but now by doing a mitzvah, you now have just started a relationship with God. Ibn Ezra is interesting in source 21. 21 is Parakutet. That's the preparation for her Sinai. He pulls out the same Pasuk again. So he 
Meaning this is this holy place and this is where we're going to serve God. And then Ibn Ezra pulls it out again. This is like the fourth time. He's pulling it out in Source 22, which is Parakavtet, which is one of the conclusionary verses dealing with the building of the Mishkan. Sorry, that's sorry, 22. And that's what it means to serve God on this mountain, the building of the Mishkan. Now, again, there's two ways of reading this. One way of reading this is the checklist. Oh, I have to build a Mishkan. And the other is the transformative relationship that God says that I will dwell within you. And that is part of the purpose of leaving Egypt in order to have this new relationship. So again, I hope that all of that was not too, uh, too complicated, which is why this is especially interesting that the Ibn Ezra just said, no, this is the fulfillment of that verse that was said all the way back in Parakimel. Correct. Right? Very good observation. Look at the Ramban in source 20. Which Ramban do we want to do? What's 25? 25 is over here. Sorry, in Parakimel. We'll start with that. Ramban on 25. Right? The Ramban on 25 is by Parakimel. And he says, Vizelachot, right? I'm going to take you out. Tadunat el Kimal Harizeh, Ume Azi Kablu Avodat Hashem, the Lechet Acharai Mitzvotai. Again, what does it mean, Tavdun Hashem? It means Kabbalah Torah. It means the accepting of Torah. And by the way, I don't want you to lose focus. This is actually part of what Anochi is. Anochi means that I am God who took you out of Egypt. Oh, and now you're going to serve that God, which means the introduction to the Sarat Brod is exactly what all of this is about. The Ramban in 26, when he talks, again, this is, they arrived at Sinai, Chodesh HaShlishi, Ki Yadu Shasham Yikablu Atatorah, Ki Moshe Gidlahem, Mashanemar, Tavdunatel Kimel Harizeh. Now this is fascinating, because I could have claimed, and I'm sure I've claimed in the past, that maybe to a certain extent, Showing up by Sinai was a bait and switch. Who said anything about mitzvot? Who said anything about God giving us all these things to do? So now the answer is, yeah. He did say it. When did he say it? He goes, you're going to take the people out. So I'm going to say it again. At least it means to do something, or it means to start a relationship, or it means that God is going to give you lots and lots of things because of the relationship. So the Ramban is saying, yeah, of course they, of course they knew that they're going to come to Sinai because Moshe had told them, you're going to serve God on this mountain. And, and therefore he's saying, yeah, that's Kabbalah Torah. Now you realize that Ramban is much closer to what the Targum Yonatan told us as opposed to that more literal interpretation of, uh, of Unculus. That Pasuk, now you pay attention based on what you just asked, Source 28 is the Pasuk that we refer to. The, this is, again, this summing up of the Mishkan. So again, that's this nice conclusion, and now you're going to know I'm God who took you out of Egypt, which, by the way, again connects you to Anochi. Why? L'shachni b'tocham for my for my essence to be within you. Look at Rashi. L'shachni b'tocham al minat l'shkon ani b'tocham. I took you out of Egypt in order for you to build the Mishkan and me to be in your midst. Now, again, according to Rashi, you would have argued, hold it, isn't the Chaita Egel? the reason we build the Mishkan, so now you realize, well, you have that Rashi to contend with, and I'm not going to solve your problems today because uh, I'm not interested, and and, and and it's not, and I'm not dealing with the Mishkan yet, and that's why I'm saying I'm not dealing with this thing in in its entirety. I just want you to see some of the, and again, it goes down to this relationship that, uh, you know, we need a place to live together, 
and uh, and we need the relationship. It sounds like it goes very much together. Yeah, that's what the Ramban said. The Ramban said he told them that he told them. No, it is in the text, but the Ramban says that Moshe told the people this. Yeah, yeah. That's what the Ramban says. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't like that. Source number thirty. I know. I just don't like it. Source number thirty. Source number thirty is the Chizkuni, and you'll note, you'll note the you'll note the Chizkuni does the same thing. He he also pulls this out by various places, but the, but his formulation over here is really interesting by Perikutet. Umosha Allah. And again, I'm skipping a little bit. Why did Moshe go up on that day? And the middle of the next line. That they get to Sinai, and Moshe then goes up and says, God, you know, what do we do now? Meaning it's like almost like the opposite of the Ramban. Moshe knew exactly what it was. Because saying, okay, we have a date. We're supposed to rendezvous. And now, what's the content? You know, what do we what do we do next, right? What do, what do we do? And I, I just found that really interesting. And again, it goes back to that same pasuk: you're going to serve God on this mountain. And Moshe is perplexed and say, "What do we do? How do we serve God in this mountain? What's the what's the service?" If you look at the Chizkudi in this week's parsha, source thirty-one. So again, he's being very technical. Ta'avdun is avodah, right? And therefore, when they bring that korban in Perikavtalu, they bring those alot. Now they fulfilled that which they had taken upon themselves earlier. But the Chizkudi in source 32, So it goes back to that same thing, just like Rashi and others. You know, the point, it's, it, it's again, the Mishkan is an expression of the relationship. Kabbalat Torah is an expression of relationship. And again, I want to tell you something. Everything I've been doing is to try to understand Anochi, and Anochi is not just another statement. It, it, it's a statement which leads towards the relationship. Now, there's another thing, and this is really where we're going to end up today. In Source 33, we're back in Parakutet, which is right before Aserta Dibrot, and we have the following formulation. Now we're getting to this point of the covenant. If you listen to my voice, Ushmartem et briti, which means, remember I said afterwards, and they took and kafdalid, and they brought the korbanot, and they took the blood, and they sprinkled it. And this is the Brit. The Brit is mentioned over here in Yutet. Ushmartem et briti, v'hayitem li skula mikola amim, and you will be for me a treasure from among all the nations, kili kola aritz. V'atem tiuli mamlechet koanim v'goy kadosh. Which means Moshe, again, perhaps goes up, or is this Chizkuni say, okay, so what are we doing? What's the deal? And uh, God says, okay, here's the deal. The deal is we're going to have a covenant. But he also uses an interesting turn of phrase, and this turn of phrase is that you're going to be a Mamlechet Kohanim and Goy Kadosh. Now, this is going to help us in all kinds of ways, so, and including helping us on some things that we didn't that I left out in my putting everything in the 10 categories because there were certain things I didn't have any place to put them. But now, but now I do. But first of all, 
When we go back to source 34, which is Bereshit Tetvav, which is the Brit Bein Abtarim, so over here is where Avraham gets the information that you will be slaves in another land, and 400 years, fourth generation will come back. But there is an introduction to it, and then there's something afterwards, which means if I only started on Pasuk Yud Gimel, and then I ended it on Pasuk Yud Zion, then it would, or even before that, on Pasuk Ted Zion, then it would have been the Brit Ben Abitarim. But there's an introduction. What's the introduction? Take the Egla, Mishuleshet, the Ez, and so on. And what does it say right afterwards in Pasuk Yud Chet? Bayomahu Karat Hashem Avraham Brit, Lemor Lazarun Atenet Haaretz Azot. Which, by the way, was this other thing that was left over the whole time going into the land, which I kind of ignored and only brought up the verses. When you get to the land, don't serve other gods. But the land is obviously a part of the Brit Bain Abitarim, but there's another point over here, and that is this point of the covenant. All this was point one. Now point two. In source 35 is where, again, the word Brit is used multiple times, which, of course, is where Avram gets commanded to do the Brit. But in the context of him being commanded to do the Brit, God says, briti bini Ani hine briti itach. Right? Now that's really interesting because what does it mean all these other nations? So keep that question in mind for a second. And and then goes back to, and this is the Briti. And, the, and, then, and then it talks about the Brit Milah itself. So this idea of Avram being an Avamon Goyim, keep that in mind, and being told that you're going to be an Amskula Mamlachet Koinim Vagoy Kadosh, Right? We have Kedusha that we still need to deal with. And this idea of, as I said again, Avamon Goyim. So, one is Avraham at this point, as a part of the covenant, Avram receives Kedusha. Apparently, the idea of being or an Amskula or making a covenant with God means that God, who's completely holy, infuses us with some holiness. Now, you could all say to me, yeah, that's what the Aserit HaDibrod are. It's how to live a holy life. The problem is that a lot of the Aserit HaDibrod are not a holy life, but it's a moral life. Now, you can argue with me on that. You really can. You could say, no, well, what, what is a holy life if not a moral life? But the, the, the fact nonetheless remains that there is a really interesting correlation between the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach and between the Aserit HaDibrod which means a lot of this is not about kedusha, but is much more about, about morality. So, and, and not to kill, not to murder is moral, right? I, I would even say to honor one's parents is moral. I, I, I mean, not to steal, I think, is moral. I think there's a lot of things over here, even a justice system, to be just and a justice is moral. Even though it's interesting that the judges are still, there's this partnership with God takes place. But when you look at Source 36 now, I, I, and I hope you can't miss this. You should be a holy people for me. So th- that's where holiness is mentioned in British Batim. You should be a holy people and don't eat non-kosher things. Which means there's nothing particularly moral about kosher or not kosher. It's about holiness. It's about kedusha. But, but that element of Ktusha is the element that I've been looking for. Because that really is what emerges from Anochi. That really is what emerges from you're going to serve God on this mountain. Because serving God on this mountain is not and was not meant to be 
a checklist, you did one more thing. It was about a transformative experience where you become something else. We become a mamlachet koanim v'goy kadosh, again, holiness, which means if you look at the microcosm of that, that's avram avinu, becoming the avamon goyim and having a brit milah. Now, kedusha is introduced into his body, as it were. Over here at Harsinai, something else is going to happen. And the sum total of this is Kedusha, part of Kedusha. Now, again, not to be confused on this, part of Kedusha is actually morality. You can't imagine that you're a very holy person if you're lacking morality. Because it's not just, it's, you can say, yeah, but I'm holy. There's no morality, but I keep kosher. No, no. You need all the morality as well. And then the, the Kedusha as well, which means this relationship with God and ultimately, expression of Kedusha is going to be the Mishkan, which means the Mishkan is creating a whole world of Kedusha, which why that should not have been a surprise ending. Hold it. Where do we get to this whole Mishkan part of it? Why do we need the Shekhinah? What's going on God's well? No. That is the expression of Kedusha, because all of this was about Kedusha. It was said back in Yutet, but I want to mention one more pasuk that you don't have in front of you, because I only added it this morning, and that is that also back in Perak Dalad, when Moshe is told and given his marching orders, start to go back to Egypt, he's told something to say to Paro, which we always take in a different way in term, because we know how it ends up. Let me explain. This is in Perek Dalet, Pesach of Aleph. And we never stop there because there's a continuation. So here's the foreshadowing of the eventual death of the firstborn. God could have said all of this without saying B'ni B'chor Yisrael. The B'ni B'chor Yisrael does a couple of things. One thing that it does, and I believe Rav Soloveitchik said this, when God says that Israel is my firstborn, he's acknowledging something else. And what is that? I have other children. You don't call somebody your firstborn if you only have one child. You only have one child. This is my child. It's not, right? He's only the, you only call some. you'll, you'll tell me halachically, but it is a bachor. You don't refer to someone as a bachor if there are not other children. Which means when God says to Paro, tell, right, to Moshe, go to Paro and say, B'ni B'chor Yisrael, God is telling Moshe, acknowledge there are other children, which actually creates this responsibility. Do you realize what this is directly parallel to? It's directly parallel to Avram being told an Avamon Goyim, which means that there is this fascinating twist that takes place. Avram is told to become very different, and how is he going to become different? He's going to do a Brit Milah, which makes him different from everybody else, but you're going to be different. It doesn't take away your responsibility towards others. You know, Avram's tent is open, he cares, but others know. It's going to create more of a moral responsibility interpersonal towards others, right? Because of your additional Kedusha. When Am Yisrael is standing at Sinai, what are they told? They're told to be, to be a mamlechet kohanim v'goy kadosh. What does it mean to be a kohen? A kohen is somebody who is a religious functionary for others. We become a nation of kohanim. What does that mean? So who's our... Who's, Who's our flock? And that's the, rest, that's the rest of the world. Which means that something really interesting takes place over here with Parashat Mishpatim. We have, in last week, the Aserat Brot. I'm going to say it like this. We have Hanochi, and then we have another nine mitzvot. Anochi is ultimately the most important, 
Yes, you could say, okay, shouldn't serve other guys, but Anochi is the most important because Anochi is the one which really expresses this concept of, uh, of Kedusha. And we now realize that that was always a part of the story. Again, you, you decide where you want to start with. You want to start with the Bereshit Barlow who came into the Triumph of the Arts? It's a good place to start. You want to look back at the Brit Bain Aptarim? It was standing there as well. You want to look when God made this covenant with Avraham in terms of the Brit Milah? It was there as well in terms of Avamon Gayim. There are other nations. Your flock just became bigger. You have more moral responsibility, but you're going to have a level of Kedusha. Again, these are not contradictions. You, you want to say it's someplace else? Again, Rev. Salvechik also applied it when uh, Avram had, went to the Akedah and he said, I'm going to go up and serve God on the mountain and then I'm going to come back and then he has to share it with them as well. Yes, sometimes we, we have to leave people at the bottom of the mountain, climb the mountain, have our experiences, but we also need to come down afterwards and to share those experiences and to give the moral implications of those experiences. You want to keep on going? Yeah, God said it to, to uh, Moshe Rabbeinu right in the beginning by the snap. You're going to, when you come out, you're going to serve God on this mountain. And now you realize the commentaries who take that, you know, that little phrase and start applying it left, right, and center in all kinds of ways. And now you realize how central and how important that was because it wasn't a question of a checklist. You're going to do one thing. It was a question of changing this relationship. And therefore, it's transformative. It's becoming Avdi Hashem. You want to use brisker terminology? It's not a question of the... It's not a question the Gavra has to do this. It's a question of transforming the person into something else. It's, it's not a pa'ula, if you want. It's not just an action. It's transformative, and it becomes somebody else. Now we become an Eved Hashem. What does it mean, la vodet Hashem ba'arazem? Now we become an Eved Hashem. What does it mean, Eved Hashem? That means that we, begat, we became infused in Kedusha. What, what now we understand when God says right beforehand, you're going to be on Melechot Kohen and Vagai Kadosh, Kedusha was introduced to it. Of all the mitzvot, it was really interesting. Where did we find Kedusha? Yes, Kedusha is in Shabbat. Yes, Kedusha is in the holidays. Yes, Kedusha is in Eretz Yisrael. And we realize there's lots of, again, we have the right side and the left side of the, of the Luchot. You've, you have a lot of things that do with morality, you have things to do with Kedusha. Kosher is just Kedusha. There's no, again, it's not a question of morality. It's a question of Kedusha. And that's where the word was mentioned. As we get to the end of Mishpatim, there we have this serving God on the mountain in order, again, I use the word conversion, but conversion from what to what? You saw, we went Jewish beforehand? That, that wasn't the issue. The issue was to become this transformative people who are infused with Kedusha, who now are able to march forward and take upon our responsibility of this dual relationship, the right and the left side of the Luchot, of morality and Kedusha, and not using one as an excuse for the other, but we need the two of them together, and then eventually to have this other impact on the rest of society. Why? Because B'nai B'chari Yisrael is my firstborn, there are other children. Av Hamon Goyim, there are other children. Right? Kadosh, that means that we have a flock which is outside of this. And all, again, none of this should have been a surprise. If I say, hold it, it was a bait and switch. No, it wasn't. It was right there from the very beginning. It was right there from when God spoke to Avraham. It was right there from the beginning at the Sneh. And if anybody was surprised by where we ended up, all that it means is you weren't really paying attention.